So if I haven't been able to meet you, my name is Tyler Miller. I'm our youth pastor here at ACC. Um, some excitement from, from the youth crew. Um, it's a lot of fun. So I get to lead our sixth through 12th graders, which is always an adventure in a variety of ways. Um, I'm super thankful for the volunteers we have and just the, all the students that we have and everything that we're getting to do. If you are a student or a parent, just a reminder, we've announced Tides dates, May 30th to June 3rd. Registration will be opening soon. Um, but we wanted, I wanted to start today with just honestly, so y'all know, I'm thankful to get to be up here, but what we believe is no matter who's up here, that this time is a time for all of us collectively to experience God. It's not about uh, me sounding good or saying the right things. It's about the Holy Spirit moving through my voice to you, to my heart even. I come fully expectant to encounter God this morning. So just know that's the expectancy that we have in this moment. But we're actually gonna kick it off with our bringing time. We believe that Anything we have, everything we have is laid down at God's feet. We actually believe this is part of worship. I actually read a quote the other day about worship that if all we do for worship is sing songs on Sunday, then those songs are just about performance. They're not actually worship. For it to be worship, we lay down our lives. So that includes giving of our money, what God has entrusted to us. So the ways to give are gonna be behind us, but just to, to give some vision of what we're doing and, and what that goes to. There's been multiple things this week that I'm like, oh my gosh, it is so cool that we're getting to see some of those tangible things. One of those things is tides. We're, we're preparing for students to go to the beach and hear about Jesus. And the existence of that camp only happened by the hand of God. We were going to go to another camp and then it got canceled eight days before we were going to go. So myself and some other leaders had to make up a camp and then the spirit breathed on that. And we've seen students encounter Jesus through that. Another thing is and you saw the post this week, our staff got to walk around, like walk around the structure of Hamilton Road, which made it really real for me. I get excited. I'm like, this is awesome. The ideas, the pictures and stuff. But as we were getting to walk around, we got to stand on the stage. We got to walk through where the kids space is, where the lobby is going to be. It made it really tangible that what we're doing, yes, church is not a building. It's a gathered people. But that that picture of that building going up on Hamilton Road is a picture of God's faithfulness for what he's been doing in this church and what he's gonna to continue to do. We don't gather here of, of this is our only expression, this is our only religious ritual, if you will, but this is like a battle station. Miles actually said that this week where we gather together, get empowered to go spread the kingdom when we go from here. And so seeing the Lord bless this church and the hands that are preparing it and the prayers, your prayers that have been going into that and just getting to see that, that reminder this week got me really fired up about what we do here. And so just know those are some of the things you're giving to. And then as right now, we've been sitting in a couple weeks now, this crisis in Ukraine, we had the opportunity and I don't really know how we have this connection, but we have some connections with some missionaries and pastors in Romania. So one of the countries really close to the Ukraine and they work, you know, at a church, I, think, I believe they even have an orphanage and a couple other things going there for their ministry, but they reached out to us. We got in contact with them because they are being flooded right now, inviting in Ukrainian refugees. And so we were actually able to give and provide support for the Ukrainian refugees that are coming in. They're trying to bring supplies into the Ukraine. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's really powerful. Not because... Not because it's like, oh, great, like, look at ACC, we're doing great, but because that's what the Church of Christ does. 
Like it is the most powerful far and away force for good that has ever existed on this planet because of the Holy Spirit. So just know things like that is what you bring your tie to. If you call this church home, those are the kind of things that we're getting to be a part of, which is just encouraging for me standing up here thinking this is so much bigger than just me standing up here sharing a message this morning. This is the church of Christ building the kingdom of God on this earth, even in what right now the entire world is looking at as the most war-torn, devastated place in our world right now. And we're getting to reach that because of what, what God is doing through this. So I'm fired up. I'm ready to go this morning. We are in Daniel. If you've been with us, we've been going through a series called Children of Revival. It's going to be fun. Today, uh, Miles preached on chapter 9 last week. Daniel's not strictly chronological in the, number of, in the order of the chapters. Um, and so we're jumping back to seven this week. And if you've read Daniel, you know this is where it's going to get real weird, real weird. But um, just to, to set this up a little bit, just so you know a little bit about me, like I said, I'm our youth pastor, but um, I am not the most effective or impactful person in my family for ministry. Um, that would be my son, Maverick, who has never met a stranger, even though he's 16 months old. And then a close second behind him would be my wife, Anne. Um, who is getting to train to be a counselor right now. She does a ton of work with our mental health um, help here at ACC. She's been able to connect a lot of people with counseling and different things like that. But what I get really excited about is we had Wake, not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, and she got to preach and she brought a word. Yes, you can get excited for that. Um, she had the opportunity, you know, Valentine's Day, that whole kind of thing. We did a prom set up. She preached basically on showing our students that a relationship with Jesus dictates everything else, no matter what the relationship is in your life. And she brought a word. I told her though, she had a really easy, an easy setup because I'm like, and all you have to do to get credibility with them is get up there and just start making fun of me. For the first five minutes, do nothing else and they will automatically be listening to you. And that's what she did. So I was, we were actually in the round. So stage right there if you came to worship night. So I was standing in the sound booth back there and every 30 seconds, all the heads just were like looking over at me. And I'm like, I can't, I just, yes, this is great. And so, but she killed it. And uh, my parents are actually in town this weekend, which is exciting. Yes, very exciting. And yes, it's very sweet. People have been like, that's so great. They, they came to hear you preach. And I'm like, yes, they did do that. But it's also my sister's birthday today. So that's a major reason they came. But at the end of the day, once I really thought about it, neither of those are the reason they came. They came to see their grandchild. And that's the only reason. That is the main reason that they're here. But I'm thankful that they're here. And so thinking about me with a 16-month-old and also leading our 6th through 12th graders, the tagline that we've used for this series in Daniel, Children of Arrival, has really stuck with me. Um, this picture of Daniel and his friends being formed in the revivals of, of King Josiah, that's probably when his parents were participating in those revivals in Jerusalem, in Judah, before the exile. They were formed through that so that they could stand firm in all these stories we read about while they're in captivity in Babylon. And so us sitting here in 2020 in the United States, we're not in captivity in Babylon. But what we've been saying through the series is what, what we are in is what we can call digital Babylon. Now we know in the Bible Belt, like it's kind of the thing to be a Christian and there's not many physical barriers to that. But we live in a culture that is directly opposed to what is happening here, maybe not explicitly, in some places in our country, maybe explicitly, but definitely not here in the Bible Belt, but implicitly through the way that our culture has been built. Like we are part of a kingdom that is a subversive kingdom and we're fighting a battle right now um, that is subversive. So if you didn't know this, kind of the perspective 
that our culture is dominated by is, is a philosophical presupposition, two big words there, just a, a pre-idea before they come to any, any solution, any problem, anything that can be learned, that nothing supernatural can exist. That happened in the Enlightenment and has been pervading our culture since then. And so you see this in a lot of different ways, in the ways that sometimes it's even hard for you and me to engage in the supernatural, spiritual things that happen in places like this. It's great when we gather because there's that elevated sense of God's presence. Jesus said, where two or more are gathered, there I'll be. So there's an elevated level of his presence. But when we spread out from here, it's hard for me, it's hard for you, it's hard for us to encounter that. And so times like this are powerful because we get to empower one another, but it's also a time where we learn things that as we go from here, we can pervade the kingdom around us. It is the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, but we're not fighting a physical battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. And so I just wanted to set the stage there. We're constantly thinking about that. I'm thinking about that, thinking about our students of how can we grow them from our amazing kids ministry, raising tiny disciples to mature followers of Christ. And so this series has been super impactful for me of what are the ways that we can grow up Christians who follow Jesus, no matter what the culture around them says, because it's implicit now, but there's every chance that it gets more and more explicit in opposition to what's happening here as the days goes, go on. And so I'm excited to open up the word with y'all this morning. Last week, Miles preached, like I said, on chapter nine, he talked about the mercy, the mercy. And so he made this statement of when we come to God in prayer, even times like this, what is more important than us starting to bring things to him, which is a very natural part of prayer, is that we remember and understand that the basis of which we come to God is not our righteousness. It's not what you did yesterday or today or the good things or the bad things you've done. It's not even on the basis of God's righteousness because he is holy, but that's not why we come to him. We come to him on the basis of his mercy. And so if you're here, maybe this is your first, second, third time. Maybe you're like, I'm not a super big fan of church, but my friend, my family member brought me. Maybe you've been going here since the beginning. Maybe you're like, I love Jesus, or you feel like you're the farthest from Jesus. Let this moment be the moment where we come together collectively and practice what we preach a little bit and remind ourselves and let me remind you that God is not mad at you for what you've done. God is not mad at you for the mistakes you've made. He's, he's, he's excited when you obey him, but that doesn't earn you more credit with him. You come to him because of what Jesus has done for you. So we come to him on the basis of his mercy. And so I just wanted to take a moment. It's going to be a little awkward, big room, a lot of people, but let's just be silent for 30 seconds. I want you to go to the Lord for yourself, for your family, to settle ourselves, to remind our spirits that's what is true this morning. As we come to open his word and learn and encounter him, we come to him on the basis of his mercy. So 30 seconds of silence, close your eyes if that helps you focus, and then I'll, I'll pray us in. So Father, like we've said, we come to you on the basis of your mercy. That is your disposition to us, no matter where we've been or who we are. You say that you know us, you knit each person in this room together, every person watching online, Birmingham, Lake Martin, Huntsville, wherever we're at, whether we're watching in the car or just listening or in this room, Lord, would you move in each of us, including me right now, reminding us that it is your great love, your great mercy 
to us that we can come to you with full confidence in this moment, that we can come to you and ask that you would speak through me and move in each of our hearts collectively as we open your word this morning. Lord, we love you and we want more of you. Would you empower us to do the work that you've called us to do, the great works you've put in advance for each of us to walk in? Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you have your Bibles, we are going to do a Bible drill, even though the college students are gone. Raise your Bibles if you got them. Let's see it. Nine, staying strong. I mean, that is an unbelievable percentage. So, we're not going to do a single drill, but if you would consider yourself, or maybe close members of your family would consider you to be a competitive person, keep your Bibles up in the air for me. It's a high percentage. I'm a little skeptical, because if you're the kind of person that's like, I'm competitive unless I'm not good, you're not really competitive. But all right, I just wanted to get a feel for it. Put your Bibles down. We can open to Daniel 7. Somebody's keeping it up a little bit longer. That is a competitive person right there. That is competition. I held it up the longest. Let's go. He wins. That's fantastic. Well, if you have not been to ACC before, you probably don't know this, but if you have been to ACC before, you probably already know this. Myself, Gage, Matt, Miles are all very competitive people. And so I had a great story about um, roasting Miles for the way that he portrays his tennis prowess on Instagram. Um, it's kind of been stepped on because Gage keeps losing, but um, <laughs> it's neither here nor there. It's just, I like don't, don't even want to give it to Miles most of the time, but he did. I mean, I guess he's won the last two, Gage. That's tough. Um, we're, believing, we're believing in resurrection and come back there. But, so you've got your Bibles open to Daniel 7. I just want to recenter us in the book of Daniel and kind of what we've been going through and what we want to look at. Because when we come to the scripture, we want to know what literature we're reading, kind of the setting and who wrote it and why. That helps us interpret it both collectively, individually, and just with the historic perspective on this book. So Daniel is what we call a major prophet, mostly because of his length, not more important than the other prophets. Um, he is what we would consider an exilic prophet, meaning that he is writing during the exile in Babylon. So there's pre-exilic prophets kind of before the Northern kingdom gets taken. There's Assyrian prophets kind of after the Northern kingdom has been taken, but the Southern kingdom's still there. And then we have exilic prophets and then some post-exilic prophets. So he is writing in the time of the exile to Babylon. And then as we know, Persia comes in and takes over. This book, if you've been with us, we've seen a lot of chiasms. No, I didn't scream as excited as Miles. I considered making a compilation video of him getting really excited about chiasms for this morning, but maybe you'll see that later on in social media. We'll see. But we will get to it. This whole book is a chiasm, and I get the unbelievable privilege to point us to the center point, the main point today in this chapter. So I'm excited to to show y'all that. Um, Miles mentioned this last week, but we see a divide in two sides of Daniel of the type of literature we're coming to. So let's go ahead and put that up. Um, we have chapters one through six as historical narrative. So there's prophetic material, there's all these other things, but it is primarily a historical narrative of here's what's happening as events of history are happening. Then on the back half, what we're starting today and we got into last week is what we would call apocalyptic literature. Miles talked about it as prophetic, but I would say apocalyptic literature, and we'll get to that word because it's a big scary word, Apocalyptic literature is intense, vivid, prophetic material. And Miles said this last week, but prophetic material is, yes, it has the element of showing what's going to happen in the future, but it is primarily to evoke a response in God's people more than it is to show every little detail of what's going to happen. And so the word apocalypse comes from a Greek word meaning uncovering or revelation. It has become to mean the end of the world because of narratives like Daniel and Revelation. Um, Daniel sometimes called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. Um, side note, 
I think we should go back to the Greek name for Revelation because it's called the Apocalypse of John. So you can see why we call it Revelation because that's a little less scary. But um, <laughs> So that's, we need to know that that is a material we, co- we are coming to today. It is supposed to evoke emotional response in us. There's very vivid imagery, symbolism, pointing to literal things and things that will happen, but also to show the people of God, here's our response, here's our perspective, here's our position as we go through these things. So just wanted to give that disclaimer as we start, because we are going to read some interesting apocalyptic literature this morning. So we're going to start in verse one, we're going to read it straight through the whole chapter, and then we're going to walk through it together. So starting in Verse 1 of chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Little aside there, the four winds of heaven, we're just talking about covering the whole earth, like there's a perspective of wholeness there, and then see symbolism, especially in apocalyptic literature, is pointing to this chaos, this, this seemingly uncontrollable thing that we see through other scripture, God is fully in control of, but it creates the sense of chaos that these beasts are coming out of. So, the first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. Could be three tusks coming out of its mouth. We don't really know. It's freaky either way. (laughs) After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was the fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and had 10 horns. So he doesn't even give us an animal. It's just a freaky, freaky beast. I'm thinking like dragon-like. I have no idea, but he doesn't even give us something that we would categorize as what it looks like. But verse eight, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had the eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. It's evoking that emotional response in Daniel. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. 
Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others and the most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before, of which, before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise. Different from the earlier one, he will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Aren't you so excited that you came to church today <laughs> to read about a guy's crazy NyQuil dream 2,500 years ago? You know what I'm talking about? When you take NyQuil or eat too late and have those insane dreams, it's probably showing my age a little bit, I guess, that I am not a teenager anymore, that if I eat too late, I have crazy dreams. Isn't that, isn't that an age thing, maybe? So what we have to remember as we come to this is we don't come to this because it's fun. I mean, it is crazy. It's kind of hysterical that we're reading this and that the youth pastor gets to preach about the crazy chapter. Um, but we come to this because if you are in Christ, this is what we would call our family history. This is our family history because of Jesus. When it's talking about the holy people, in context, Daniel's talking about the nation of Israel, but we've been grafted in and are now part of that. So as we're seeing this phrase, holy people of the most high, that's us because of Jesus. And so we read this and we want to contextualize it and learn from it because this matters for us today. Yes, it was that long ago, but this is our family history. You have to know where you come from and the ways that we are built and designed and the things that we will experience in this world. So we have to remember as we come to this apocalyptic literature, we're not trying to break apart every little detail and understand every little thing as it's going to happen. There's a verse in Deuteronomy that says, the revealed things are ours, the hidden things are God. There's hidden things even in this chapter that we can't fully understand. But what we can do is take the obvious and learn from it to do something in us that transforms the way we walk as we go from here. So that's what we want to do today. We don't want to get lost in the obscure. We want to focus on the obvious of this passage so that we can grow from what God's speaking. But if you're like me, you probably have a lot of questions about the obscure. So we're going to do a quick run through just to give you some perspective of the crazy obscure things in this passage. So we see in verse 4, the first beast, like a lion, wings of an eagle, wings torn off, given the mind of a human. Likely and historically, people take this beast to mean the kingdom of Babylon. Um, Babylonian images and, and the main street of Babylon were lined with statues of lions with eagles' wings. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was identified or identified himself as that many times. And can you think of a situation in which a Babylonian king was made to be like a beast and then became a human again? the story we read of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter four. So most people take that first beast to be the kingdom of Babylon. The second was a bear-like beast raised up on one of its side, 
terrifying because it has ribs or tusks in its mouth. It was told to get up and eat your fill of flesh, a scary beast. If you think back to chapter two, we've seen this statue of a progression of kingdoms. So progression of kingdoms in two and in seven might be a chiasm. It is, we'll get to it. But we take the second beast generally to mean the Medo-Persian empire. Some people take it laying on its side to show that one side of the kingdom would dominate the other. We know from history that the Persian side of the kingdom came to dominate the, the Median side of it. And so that's generally how people take that beast. The third one, a leopard with four wings and four heads. In their perspective, I think they knew about cheetahs, but for whatever reason, leopards indicated speed. And then given wings, it was even faster. So the next kingdom that arises is a kingdom that spreads out very quickly. Most people would take that as a conquest of Alexander the Great, conquered these empires in the span of one lifetime. But as soon as he died, his kingdom was divided because he didn't leave a succession. Hence, the four heads of this beast is generally how we have historically taken it. Before we get to what the fourth beast might mean, horns in literature and Hebrew literature showcase royal power, sovereignty, strength. So that's kind of showing the, the horns of the fourth beast. And then that little horn, that's what makes the fourth beast really controversial as we get to it. But just the eyes and the mouth symbolizing that it's intelligent because of the eyes and it's boastful because of the mouth. We see that kind of in the scripture there. So the fourth beast is the question mark. A lot of different ways to take it. I'm not even gonna try to put one of here's my opinion. I'm just gonna give you the options and we'll go from there. One option is that all this has already happened in that the Hellenistic kings, that's what we call the kings of the different kingdoms after Alexander the Great's empire broke apart. That is the fourth beast. Some people take it as 10 different kings from those kingdoms with the little horn being a guy named Antiochus who in the 150 range BC, I don't remember the exact year, conquered Jerusalem, Judea, set up a pig, sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies, which is a huge abomination if you know the scriptures. He set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, tortured and killed Jews in the temple. And so we could see this being him in this context. So that's one of the options. Another option being Rome, because that's where we see the uh, fourth part in the chapter two being is generally we take that as Rome. So this could be Rome, 10 different kings, with the little horn being a guy named Titus, who in 70 AD destroyed the second temple. So some people might take it as that. Another option is we take it as Rome initially, but then we live in a Roman world still. So some people take it as the 10 kings, whether literal or 10 symbolizing completeness, 10 different kings or world leaders extending through our time unto the end with the little horn being the figure biblically that we call the Antichrist. Again, we're not going to get into what that means today, but that is one way that people take it. And then the last option, just from generally reading a lot of commentaries about it, one option is people take it as a type meaning the Pharisees, Sadducees that killed Jesus fill the role of the beast, the fourth beast. Antiochus, Titus, Rome, horrible leaders of today until the Antichrist all fill this role of the beast coming against God's people. So there could be elements of that as well. So zooming back out to the obvious, what is very clear regardless of how we take these beasts in this passage is that the kingdoms of this world will dominate history and the holy people of God will suffer. And so sitting 2,500-ish years after this was written down, have we seen that? And I would say the answer is a resounding yes. I just listed multiple kingdoms that arose after Daniel that harmed God's holy people. 
And then we see after Jesus and the church is established, persecution after persecution after persecution, then you might say, okay, well, Rome took Christianity as as the religion of the empire. True, but then it transformed itself through many, many years into a system and a structure that in parts of it, because of broken humanity, because of the, the brokenness in us, became problematic for the actual purpose of the gospel. It is not me coming against any part of the, the Roman Catholic Church or what it is today, but by its own admission at times, we've seen leaders in that church, leaders in Christian kingdoms in Europe and all over the world do things that are clearly not called for by the king of all, which is Jesus. And so we see kingdom after kingdom, and, and let's even think about today, we're seeing leaders cause war and terror on this world constantly. If you watch the news, we see this dictator and this leader and, and this person do this thing and bad story after bad story. And so just to put this in perspective, um, there's a quote from a guy, Malcolm Mug- Muggeridge is his name. He was a uh, satirist, a journalist in England who lived through the first, second world wars and into the um, 80s and 90s. And he wrote this quote in 1980 that just, I think, gives a good perspective of this. So he says, remember, this is him in 1980. So before any of the things that we in our lifetime have seen, the, the terror in the Middle East, terrorist attacks, all the wars that our country and other countries have gotten into since then, the war that we're looking at now, the fall of the Soviet Kingdom, or the Soviet Union, excuse me. So he says, we look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then dispersed, one nation dominant and then the other. Shakespeare speaks of the rise and fall of the great ones, the ebb and flow with the moon. Is the part that gets me. In one lifetime, I have seen my own countrymen ruling over a quarter of the world. That would be the British Empire that slowly fell apart. The great majority of them convinced. So this is as the British Empire has already fallen apart. He's saying British people at that time were still convinced in the words of what is still a favorite song, that God who's made them mighty would make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last for a thousand years. We also know that that dictator came firmly against the Jewish people of God. An Italian clown announced that he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. That's Mussolini, a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ahsoka, more humane than Marcus Aurelius. So at one time, Stalin, before we knew of all his genocides, was seen as like this perfect moral figure in the Soviet Union. I've seen America wealthier in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than all the rest of the world put together so that Americans, had they so wished, could have outdone an Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime, all gone with the wind. England now part of an island off the coast of Europe and threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime, he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by the fears of running out of the precious fluid that keeps the motorways roaring and the smog settling, with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and all the great victories of the Don Quixotes of the media when they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. So that one picture there just gives us a little taste, and you could add to it things that we've seen today of kingdoms rising and the people of God being persecuted or come against. So I would say the obvious from this passage has definitely come to happen. We can talk about the obscure and what it means, but what we see from this is that what Jesus said has come true and will continue to come true. In this world, we will have trouble, guaranteed. Like that's what we see here. But what we have to do is we have to 
take the high point, shall we call it, of this passage. Here's where we get to the chiasm. So let's set it up. If you haven't been here, chiasm, um, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second, but a chiasm is a literary structure to highlight a center point, whether going um, in a V to point to a center point, or we're going to see it's actually a little two chiasms in this structure, but it's meant to highlight a main point. So some people might not see a chiasm in the book of Daniel, but everybody still takes this center point as the main point of Daniel. So let's look at that and let's remember chapter one through six is historical, seven through 12 is apocalyptic. So let's put that first one up there. If you wanna take a picture, we don't have the center points up yet. We're gonna get to that. This will be on our story later if you wanna see it with a little more detail. So first chapter, we see the historical prologue, the setup of what Daniel and his friends are doing. And starting in chapter two, it's in the language of Aramaic. Aramaic being the common language, the language of the kingdoms, the language of empire that more people can read. So two through seven are all in Aramaic. And most people see an Aramaic chiasm right there. Remember, we were talking about four kingdoms in this chapter. What other chapter do we talk about four kingdoms? That'd be chapter two with the image of the statue. You go from the image of the statue in chapter two to God's people on trial because they didn't bow to a statue. And then in chapter four, we see a king humbled, given the mind of a beast, and then raised up because he was humbled and repented and proclaimed that God is reigning. Then we see a king in chapter five, his statue, his idol, his city is taken because he did not humble himself before God most high. Chapter six, we see God's people tried with the lion's den, with beasts. And then chapter seven, we see again, this image of kingdoms, with this perspective of the beast. So we see in the chiasm right there? Yes, good. Start of the Hebrew in chapter eight. You can read through these and we're gonna, we're gonna walk through these. We see prophecy of kingdoms again, a ram and a goat. Chapter nine, what Miles read last week, Daniel humbling and repenting on behalf of God's people through his prayer. We see in chapter nine, at the end of it, there's a center point coming where a king is talked about coming to God's holy people. Then prophecy of a king right after that, what's gonna happen to that king and empire right after his death, we're gonna see. Trials of God's people in chapter 10, we see a spiritual battle revealed to Daniel on behalf of God's people. And then at the end, wrapping up their prophecy of the kingdoms, there's what's called the king of the north and the south and a whole vision of that. And then with the end, an apocalyptic closing of the whole book. So we see this perspective, this chiasm coming through the whole things. Let's see the center points at each. We're gonna read the center point of that Aramaic chiasm first. You don't have to flip there. It's going to be on the screen. Daniel 4, 37. If you remember when Miles preached on chapter four, he said this might be the, the hinge point between a chiasm of four and five. It is, but we extend it through the whole Aramaic section. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So what we see in this, and this is my paraphrase for this center, is that his, God's authority, brings adoration. So in the midst of kingdoms rising and falling, in the midst of a section written in this language of empire that God's people are reading and coming to, in the midst of all of these prophecies of kings and kingdoms and the rising and the falling and the coming against and trials of God's people, what we see is the center point that Daniel's bringing us to is that these kings and these kingdoms will be humbled before God most high. Whether through their own choice or the humbling that God brings to them, all kingdoms, all knees will bow, all tongues will profess profess that he is king over everything. That's what we see as the center of this Aramaic chiasm. And then you don't have to flip there. I'm not, I'm not going to read the verse, but in chapter 9, verse 26, this anointed one that comes to God's holy people is put to death. Now us reading it here, we take that as Jesus Christ, and we know 
His life didn't get taken from him. He said, I lay my life down. So instead, we see the kings of this world over here, prideful, trying to raise themselves up. And then we see the king of God's people coming and humbling himself before the, the brokenness of this world. And so it says that this anointed one would be put to death. And so the little paraphrase that we're going to put up there is that this anointed one, this king of God's people walks in humility. So we see on two sides of this chiasm, we're going to put that up there with, with those paraphrases. Middle of the Aramaic one, that God's authority brings adoration from the kings of this world. And then from this Hebrew chiasm, we see the center being that the anointed one, the king of this world, excuse me, the king of God's people, we're going to put it up there bottom right um, of the Hebrew chiasm, that the king of our church, God's people, lays down his life in humility. And then we get to the center up there at seven. We're not going to put it up yet because in my mind, if you look at this, logically, right, the center of the chiasm should be at the end of chapter seven, beginning of chapter eight, just functionally how this is set up. It's not. It's in the middle of seven. And the reason for that is the reason that this is taking the main point, the center point, however you want to say this, is that chapter seven is the only chapter in the book of Daniel that is written in Aramaic and it is apocalyptic literature. So written to the world, but yet from this perspective of God's holy people through the apocalyptic literature. Also, and we don't have a graphic for this, if you lay out chronologically the book of Daniel in pieces, there's four chronological periods before and four after with seven being the middle. So we take the middle of seven as this middle point of the whole book. So let's read it. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so if you've grown up in church, you hear son of man, you're like, ding, 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 my Jesus bell is ringing. That means Jesus, 100%. If that isn't you and you're like, why does that mean Jesus? Well, Jesus identified himself. That was his favorite term to use for himself is son of man. When he was on trial before the high priests and the Sadducees, they say, are you the Messiah? Tell us if you are. And he said, you say I am, but I tell you from now on, you're going to see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, pulling that exact phrase from this passage. Jesus, the king that walks in humility, the anointed one that laid down his life, identifies himself as this king, this king that'll raise forever. The main point of Daniel, if you want it really simply, is Jesus wins. He's the same now, or excuse me, he was the same, he is the same, and he will be the same forever. And that is a victorious king that came in humility and is now reigning forever at the right hand of God the Father. We see this picture of him coming to the Ancient of Days, given authority, glory, sovereign power. Remember the horns of the beast dictate that, symbolize that of these kings and kingdoms of this world. He's given all sovereign glory, power, and authority. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Peoples of every language will worship him. So as this is written in the language of not God's people, they're being proclaimed to that this trial too will end, the trial that you're in, the trial that we're in today will end because the son of man reigns forever. And if you are in him, here's the good news. If you're competitive like me, you're going to win as well. At the end of the day, you win. That fires me up as a competitive person, and it's not on me. It's not on my strength, on what I've done, because what has the Son of Man done? He's the one that humbled himself and was given power, authority, glory, was given the victory and reigned supreme. But what he does with that is, is invites you and me into it. 
He doesn't keep that for himself because it's not, he knows that it's not just about him. In love, in mercy, he invites you and I into that, into that victory. We don't see it now. We see glimpses of it through this subversive kingdom that we're helping build. We see it in the picture that we gather together as believers of the church of Jesus Christ have for thousands of years now. We see his kingdom spreading slowly, subversively, knowing that at the end of the day, he is going to win. He wins forever. And so this is just a perspective that that we see later in scripture that kind of makes it, this always makes it very real for me of what this victory means for you and me. So I'm gonna read it. We're gonna be up on the screen. You don't have to flip there. Revelation 21. This is what this victory does for you and me. This is what it's going to look like. 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with him. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The trials will pass away. It doesn't matter what they are. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. That's the story. We sang that song, Know You Will, earlier and it says the story ends in you. The story ends in us, the people of God, living with our God forever. That is the the epitome, the height of our existence is being with our God in a place that death does not affect us. These trials do not come after us. That's the end of the story. Another line from that song is from Eden to Zion. Eden being the garden where we fell, Zion being the victorious city where we're gonna live forever. He reigns supreme forever. The lamb was slain before the beginning of time. And so from the beginning of time till now unto eternity, Christ will be reigning as the supreme leader, as the victorious one for all eternity. And so here's what this does for you and me. It does two things. These are my two points, and then we're gonna get out of here. His victory brings two things because we're his co-heirs, his co-victors because of what he's done for us. So the first thing it brings to you and me today is peace and the chaos. Peace and the chaos. If you play sports, if you've played sports before, there's a lot of confidence when you know that your team or that you're better than the person you're playing against. So how much more confidence should we have when we've been told and we've been proclaimed to that we are victorious in Christ? He's already won. So we're fighting a battle that it might look like we have step backs. It might look like, look like we have trials. It might look like we're losing, but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we win. How much confidence should that bring for you and me? Because the truth is, we're all anxious about something. In fact, most of us are anxious about a lot of things. If we look at current events, our lives, our families, the mistakes we've made, you and I know that a lot of times we take that weight upon ourselves. We carry the weight of the world. Maybe you don't do that consistently. Maybe you only do that in moments. Maybe it's only things that have to do with you. Whatever it is, there's anxiety, there's pressure, there's struggle, there's a lack of peace that exists in all of our lives. We have to let the hope of the fact that Jesus wins sink into us to be convinced by the fact that we have unassailable peace in Christ. 
if he wins, these trials will fade. Paul has a whole, a whole thing talking about, yes, we have things that come against us, but at the end of the day, those are not the determining factor of the story. I got to, the first ever funeral I've done, I got to preach my grandfather's funeral a couple weeks ago. And it was challenging for me seeing my family and everybody there, you know, dealing with this. I'm struggling with the grief. And, and I just felt like the Lord's reminding me, and this doesn't, this doesn't change the f- fact that we're in grief. It doesn't change the fact that we're anxious, but it is comforting to remember that the story of my grandfather's life is not the sadness that, I, that we had to preach into, that we had to walk in, in his funeral. The story of that story, the headline of that story is that he will live forever and is reigning with Christ even now in heaven. That's the headline of the story. So yes, we have all this trouble in between, but if we remember that's the end of the story, that's the real purpose of what's happening. When we watch current events and all the things going on right now, watching the news, whatever you like to do, remembering that these kings will rise and fall. They will do atrocious things. There will be hard things in this world coming against the people of God, coming against God's creation. Everything that he has created here is being attacked by the spiritual darkness. But at the end of the day, it will lose and the darkness will bow to the light. And when we remember that, when we become convinced of that, there's a peace that moves in us. We've been saying this phrase, hope motivates faithfulness. When we remember that picture, it's a lot easier for us to walk in that peace and confidence. And that is a daily reminder because our flesh, everything in this world, remember we are fighting a culture that is okay with us meeting here, but is against the idea that God exists. Everything surrounding us wants to convince you of the opposite, that the world's falling apart and everything is failing, that you failed your siblings, your brothers, your friends, whatever. You haven't because he reigns victorious forever. So there's this quote that from a, from a commentary that I read that I wanna put up there. Once convinced of the truth of this chapter is proclaiming, the reader is in possession of the key to history. The international scene is not after all out of hand for it is in God's hand and individual lives find their meaning in relation to his kingdom. Those who pray sincerely that kingdom come, lose themselves in his great cause and in the process find their own identity. So we have to be convinced of it. You might've heard this forever. This is what we call the lullaby effect of you've heard these stories for so long. You've heard this truth that you're like, yeah, I know that's true, but you don't let it sink in. You have to become convinced of this truth to find that peace in the chaos. And then the other thing, what do keys do? They unlock. If we know the key of history, it should unlock the events that you're going through right now because you're part of history. God chose you to be in the place and the time that you're at right now. Yes, we see this narrative throughout history of God's people being fought against by the kingdom of darkness, but he chose you to be in the families you're in. He chose you to be in the relationships that you're in. He chose you to be in the work, in the school, in the friendships that you're in. So you have to have peace and confidence that he will reign victorious even in your life, despite the trials that you see. And so point number two, bold purpose for today. Bold purpose. So I have two quick questions. Why, if we know that's the end of the story, if we know Jesus wins is the end of the story, would we settle for a Bible Belt American 2022 life? Because you know what that life is marked by, and we say this a lot at this church, you can look around the world, in our country, in our area, that life is marked by anxious thoughts, divorce, depression, challenges. And this is no guarantee that we as the people of God are not going to have some of those struggles, but it is a guarantee that those struggles don't win at the end of the day. And so why would we settle for for the most important things to the world being our most important things? Why would we not walk boldly? Because there's two phrases that come to mind that that always get me excited like this. I heard a phrase, drive it like you stole it and playing with house money. 
we can afford to get our hopes up. We can afford to take some risks to the people of God because we know he wins at the end of the day. So you don't have to settle in and fear, be like, let me keep my family safe. Let me keep my family close. Yes, there's wisdom in that. But sometimes we use the wisdom card as an excuse to not live. Maybe bold extension of the kingdom, faithful lives where we do things that might be a little crazy on the outside. So that's my point number two, or my question two of this point. Is there something bold, risky, faith-filled that this truth might make you think of? Maybe you've already thought about it. Maybe you're gonna think about it later, but think on that. What does bold purpose look like in your life? Because that is true. That's the reason that we have it on the wall. Like that's the reason I'm looking right there and it says Jesus wins. We're gonna have that in the new building and we're gonna proclaim that until this church stops existing or Jesus comes back because that is the story that we live in. So because of that, there is purpose in your life today. Your purpose is his glory. We build the kingdom and we grow ever brighter because of that truth. So we walk into this world absurdly confident that he will reign at the end of the day. And so how we're gonna close this is, is just like we closed last week. The way that we walk in that victory is in humility because that's how Christ purchased it for us. He laid down his life. He didn't consider uh, equality with God something to be grasped, but instead went to death on a cross. So he humbled himself. And so communion is this reminder for you and me of that humility, that surrender, that desperation is how we participate in this. It's not on your merits, it's on his. But what this humility also does, and I say this a lot to, to some of our college students, you can't be humble without being confident and you cannot actually be confident without being humble. It's not about your skill, your merit coming to Jesus. But now that you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you should have an unbelievable confidence walking into this world that he is using you. He's put good works in advance for you to do. So we're gonna take this time to remember what he has done for us, to look to the cross, to look to his sacrifice and remember that on the other side of the cross is his victory. And so you probably got the elements on your way in. If you didn't, just raise your hand and one of our team will bring it to you. But take this time to consider him who endured such opposition, to look to Christ. Dads, maybe pray over your families. Husbands, maybe pray over your wives. If you came with friends and you wanna to pray together, pray into the stories that we're seeing now and remember that his body and his blood has purchased for us a victory that we could never win. So again, raise your hand if you didn't get the elements and I'm gonna pray us into this moment. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that your victory is something you invited us into, that your strength is something you laid down on behalf of your people that your humility brings ultimate victory, that you will reign forever. Thank you that as we look into this word and we stop here and now to consider the truth and the weight of our sins, our brokenness, the darkness of this world that you bore on the cross. Lord, we remember your goodness and the fact that you invite us in. Lord, thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna go into communion time. If, if you are not in Christ, don't feel the pressure to take it, but let's pray. Again, raise your hand if you didn't get it, and then we will worship together.